You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. We are in the book of Acts, just going right through it in Acts chapter 5 this week. Uh, it's good to be back up here. Baby's well, mom's well, all is well. So thank you all for the support there. Uh, yeah, thank you. It's been a, we have now have a 16-year-old, a 12-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 2-week-old. So uh, that's our world, and all is well. We're grateful to God, and the family's great. Uh, let's pray together, and then we will jump into Acts chapter 5, the second half of it. Our Father, we are thankful for your love for us. How amazing it is to even be able to pray to you, to know our Creator, to have a relationship with you. We know it's only possible through the blood of Jesus, who died for us, is the mediator for us, reconciled us. Lord, I ask that because we believe Jesus rose from the grave, that we will be a faithful people who love you and love our neighbor, that you allow us to be effective witnesses for your good news. Lord, I ask you the enemy out of this place, out of our city, out of our church. Lord, I ask that you give all the churches in Tallahassee, missionaries around the world, let us all be found faithful in proclaiming the good news of Jesus today. I ask you to speak through me of this important book you've given us to tell us how the church was first formed and came about and how your Holy Spirit allowed people to go forward with the good news. Lord, let us be faithful. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Uh, so what's happening here is that tension is starting to increase. More people are coming to faith in Christ. Uh, the disciples are out on mission. God's allowing them to perform different miracles to validate the message, to confirm that they had the authority to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Uh, a completed Bible had not been written yet, uh, so God used different means to validate his truth, validate his word. And then we get to chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 17, and we see the tension start to hit a pretty high moment where it tells us this. Then the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. People were now following this new way, as they called it, Christianity, rather than following them, they started growing jealous. So what do they do? They use their authority. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. And public jail in this context is for others to see. It's not behind 100 walls. It's not off in some rural area. It is right in the middle of town where you can actually see the prisoners in the jail cell. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. I want to put you back in the exact place where you were first captured and put in jail. I'm going to return you to the scene of the crime and tell you to proclaim the name of Jesus. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach when people would have been there at the daytime. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought Heard what was going on. Oh, that's not them. They're in prison. Remember, we put them there. Go, go show everybody. They're in jail. But, oh, that word but just keeps coming up. When the servants got there, they did not find them in the jail. So they report, returned and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing in front of the doors. When we opened them, no, we found no one inside. What a moment. And how about God just absolutely basically flexing at these people. The guards are outside, the doors are locked, none of it matters. As the captain of the temple police, so bigwig here in the house, and the chief priests, the elite here, heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what could come of this. What was it gonna mean? More people gonna follow them? Is there gonna be a riot? What's gonna happen here? 
Someone came and reported to them, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. John Pohill, one commentator who's a scholar on the book of Acts, wrote that one should not miss the irony of their being placed in a public jail openly for all to see, and soon they'd be unable to find these very ones so openly placed in the jail. So the angels released them by God's power right where the conflict began at the temple, showing us that God's plan cannot be stopped. This is an important flex that God is doing here. Letting these believers know for sure that he is with them, that he can be trusted, that since Jesus rose from the grave, that everything they're doing is worth it. And God in his sovereignty has their back, not just has their back, but is guiding and directing and leading and orchestrating everything that is happening for his glory and for his name to be made known. Three times in Acts, we see prison doors miraculously open. And it's not just for the sake of them being open to free God's people. There's more to the story. The Bible often gives us visible portraits of invisible spiritual realities. So these doors being open, it's a sign of Easter. It's a sign of a new Exodus release. An actual event, a visible occasion of the invisible reality of our spiritual release from captivity our releasement from the penalty of sin, our being released from being dead in our sins, being separated from God, being foreign and and removed from God, released from the captivity to freedom now in Jesus Christ, of the one who died for us and rose again. Jesus was quoting Isaiah in Luke 4, who was actually prophesying about Jesus, when he says, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. This is a spiritual captivity. Not some sort of self-help kind of illustration here, but a spiritual captivity that Christ, at our salvation, releases us spiritually from the weight of sin, the penalty of sin, the punishment of sin, to a new life with Christ. Jesus is in the business of releasing the spiritual captives into spiritual freedom found in Jesus. And that's what's happening right here in a physical sense. They're actually released literally from prison, but it points to a greater reality of the truth, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus frees us from our imprisonment spiritually. So back to Acts. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. Use that old phrase, my, how the tables have turned. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin and the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in the name? As in the name of Jesus. Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. So not only were they proclaiming the name of Jesus, they were letting the, the, the Sadducees know and the Pharisees know that they're the ones who are responsible for killing Jesus. John Stott says, before we often know what Jesus, how, what the cross did for us, we need to also understand what we actually did to make the cross happen. It was our sin that brought him there. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. What a response. That sounds so simple. But that's their reply. Not some deep philosophy. They tell him to do one thing. Peter says and the apostles go, well, we are followers of the Lord. Jesus rose from the grave. We are God's people. We've seen him do miraculous things. Like we're on his side. What he tells us to do is what we are going to do. 
The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus. And he's talking to a Jewish audience here, reminding them that this had been promised for generations that the Messiah would come. This was actually him, the one you crucified, whom you murdered by hanging him on a tree. And in verse 31, what he's about to tell them is actually extremely blasphemous to these hearers. God exalted this man to the right hand. Wait, you're telling me that a man is at the right hand of God? I mean, that sounds, that's extremely blasphemous to these Jewish people in this culture at this time, which start to enrage them. And then he goes even further as ruler and savior, and then adds to it to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Earlier in the Gospels, they say, who can forgive sin but God alone? That's blasphemous to say that Jesus can forgive sins, and he's saying that's exactly the point. He is God, and that is why we follow him. It says we're witnesses of these things. We've actually seen it with our own eyes. This is not about our tradition or our heritage or a guilt removal. We actually know this to be true. We saw him die. We saw him rise again. We saw him ascend to heaven, and we're witnesses of this, and so is the Holy Spirit, who God has given to those who obey him. The Spirit fills all believers. The new temple of God are believers. It's all of us. So here they are at the temple declaring the good news of the Holy Spirit, whose chief purpose is to testify to the glory of the Son, all happening right here in front of them. What a story. And there's some important parts we must show that we catch here. And the first one, he says, the angels are, give a word from the Lord, and after they're released, they say, go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. This is the first time we see the faith referred to as the life, and their first act as freed prisoners, now set free, no longer captives, is to go and tell about their release. Not just their physical release, their spiritual release, but they know Jesus now. To go and share the good news in exactly the same place where they were taken captive. Notice that nothing else comes in the way of that at first. Like that's the first priority now is to go and proclaim what has happened to you. Go and tell them. We also see that the governments of, this, of their time and the rulers cannot stop the spread of the gospel no matter how hard they try. It is still going to go forward this good news of Jesus resurrected and coming again. Then we see two things that I think are pretty important to catch in this story. See, the first one is that a lot of discipleship in the church for a long time, and I think it's a good thing, has been done to help Christians not conform to this world. And if you're new to church, discipleship is really kind of the process of becoming more like Jesus, studying the scriptures together, having someone help you walk in a worthy manner of your calling in Christ. It's a long, lifelong process, and a lot of it's been done to help people not act like the world. Because we're citizens, the Bible says, of a different world. That we're not, the Bible even says don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be, renew, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. It's a good thing to not give in to being like this world. But I think we see here in Acts another part of the story of discipleship. Not just to help people not be like the world, but to help believers make sure they don't collapse under the weight of this world. Not just be like the world, we want to avoid being like, we want to be like Christ, but to help Christians avoid the collapse that can take place under the weight of this world. And mainly what I mean by that is the ideologies that are coming at us like a freight train all the time. Because right now there are agendas all over the place. Progressive ideologies that want you to conform to a certain way 
And it's so easy for Christians to cave into it all the time because either they're brainwashed, they don't want to be viewed a certain way, they want to be liked, social media tells them to, uh, they're surrounded by it all the time. And as Christians, we have to learn how to be faithful under the weight of this radical, idealistic, ideological, I mean, world. I really believe this. That outside of personal integrity and character, which I think is the most important thing, that courage might be the most important virtue in living for Christ today. Outside of personal character and integrity, that courage, in other words, just kind of having some guts, might be the most important virtue if we're going to live faithfully as exiles in our world today. My friend Trevin Wax writes this, in a hostile culture, church membership, being a part of a church, is going to have some cost attached to it not just benefits. Where for a long time, being a part of a church and a community had really big perks to it. I've told you this story before, not to be a broken record, but I think it resonates in terms of an example of this, uh, that my friend in college 30 years ago in Mississippi, uh, his roommate was an atheist. He shared the gospel regularly, the guy just wasn't interested. They remained friends, but this guy was just not caving, did not want to follow the Lord, just really just, just very resistant to the things of God. They stayed in touch, they were good buddies. He calls him on the phone one day, decades later, and says, hey, I need you to recommend for me a good church in Biloxi. My buddy goes, praise the Lord, like you become a believer? Oh, that's amazing, I've always hoped that prayed this day would come. He's like, oh man, come on, get out of here, I don't believe that stuff. He goes, why do you want a church recommendation then? So well, I'm running for office. And you can't run for office in Biloxi, Mississippi if you're not a part of a local church. That may have been true then. But now, if anything, it'll cost you. It'll cost you. Because you'll be linked to a church that believes that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Be linked to a church that actually believes the Bible is the word of God. Not just our church, any Bible-believing church. And the question is, not in a politics kind of sense, because most of us in this room won't be running for office, but are you prepared for that? Where used to have benefits, now it can actually marginalize you. It may become a little weird and countercultural to attend a church. Trevin adds this what the church mourns, the world celebrates. What the world celebrates, the church mourns. And what's the goals of the world right now? Not just towards us, but towards all people? Is indoctrination. Believe this and think this. And then assimilation, become like us, go into the crowd. I think the church has the opportunity to show the world that there's something more important and something more lasting than the social media noise of the day. That we don't take our marching orders from this world. That we actually take them from the word that God has given us as the redeemed, loved children of God. That allowed me a drink of water, so thank you. <laughs> Courage. And I don't even mean you have to stand up on the, you know, the break room table and say something. But rather, are you going to not conform to something? That's the call on all Christians. To not collapse under the weight of this world. It's happening all the time. Christians go away to college. They come home from Christmas break and all of a sudden they're radicalized and their parents are idiots and church is bad and that's why we take next generation ministry so seriously here. 
our students come back for Christmas break and their parents are like, whoa, Jesus kid, ease up. We cannot collapse under the weight of this world. Second thing, we see an example of civil disobedience. They're like, wow, this is a good week to come. We're getting into it. Civil disobedience. They tell them, don't do this, the authorities, and they go and do this. Proclaim the name of Christ. How do we think about that? That's not some kind of one-off. This is actually taking place for us to see something bigger. So when is civil disobedience right for Christians? Now, I think it's important we see this in a spiritual sense. I'm not talking about how we think about military or how to handle dictators. And that, 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 I'm going to stay in my lane. That's not, that's not my pay grade. There is a ch- I think Christians need to talk about those kind of things, but that's not what I mean. I mean more in a spiritual sense, more than a national welfare kind of sense. I'm not talking about January 6th or riots or burning cities down or Black Lives Matter protests or bombing abortion clinics or I'm not talking about any of those kind of things that we see happen. That's not, I don't see that as civil disobedience uh, for the Christian. It's a different context here, as we'll see. Here's what they're told. Go, verse 20, and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Who tells them that? God tells them that. This went against the direct command from the civil authorities in verses 27 through 28. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? These have been the rulers in this community at this time. Didn't we tell you, Philemon says 55, you're going 70. Didn't we tell you this? It was right in front of you. And Peter's and the apostles reply, we must obey God rather than people. So what does that tell us? That for Christians to engage in actual civil obedience spiritually, we need to have a clear command of God. A clear command of and from God. And where do we find clear commands from God? Not in our minds, not deep down in our hearts. We find them in the scriptures. So when the scriptures call us to X and the world tells us, no, it's this, that is when we say, we don't obey you, we obey God instead. Examples throughout the Bible, there's hundreds, but I'll give you a few. Daniel in Babylon is told that he's not allowed to pray to the one true God. Well, Daniel's a believer. He's one of God's people. He has real spiritual convictions. And throughout the story of God's people, they're told to pray. So he says, well, I don't obey you, I obey God. I'm, I'm gonna pray. So what's he do? He prays to his God regardless of the circumstances or what was going to happen. He got thrown in a lion's den as a result. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter three. These are far, these are not kids' stories here. They're told to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. They go, well, the scriptures are clear. You'll not have any other God. You won't worship anyone or anything else. So they refuse to do it and they're thrown into a furnace as a result. Jesus in Acts chapter one. You will be my witnesses. You're gonna go and tell the good news to all the earth. And here is now these leaders saying, do not preach about Jesus. And there they stand up with God telling them, go tell them about this life. And they do it anyways. Not because they're rebelling, but because they belong to God and not to man. 
The ones telling them not to are the ones who are rebelling. Today, pretend that gender is a social construct. No. He made them male and female. You guys need to stand up and say something every single time, but it does mean as a believer you need to not conform and not bow down. Don't meet for person in church. The Bible tells us to not forsake meeting together. It's only so long we're going to let that happen. Only so long. And here's what's amazing. They just weren't standing against something. This isn't one big fight happening here. It's not one big protest. By maintaining their convictions, no matter how much pressure they were under, they were bringing blessing to the world because the gospel would go forward to the ends of the earth. We're recipients today of the fact that they wouldn't cave. The gospel went forward and came here later, generations later, because they wouldn't cave. And here's the question. Is our good news of the gospel going to go forward to the next generation because we won't cave? About who Jesus is, what he's done, and what what God's word says. Augustine said that sometimes we must stand against the world for the good of the world. Stand against the world for the good of the world. Because we want to see captives release spiritual captives. It only comes to the name of Christ. So when they heard this, verse 33, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. They might not want to kill us today, but they're definitely enraged. But a Pharisee, one of their people, Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. He said to them, men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Because don't you all remember some time ago, Theodos, and they're like, I think I remember that guy, rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. Oh, yeah, I remember those guys. Oh yeah, his books are now on the for sale rack outside on the cart at Barnes & Noble. That's what happened to him. Like every other new ideology that comes forward at a time. After this man, there's another one. Remember Judas the Galilean? Rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. Remember that guy? He was kind of a big deal for a little while. Yeah, I think so. He also perished. He's dead. And all his followers were scattered. You know who's not dead? You know, his followers are still standing up to this day proclaiming the good news. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For this plan of this work is of human origin. You know what's going to happen? It's going to fail. But if it's of God, we will not be able to overthrow them. Jesus himself said the gates of hell would not be able to prevail against his church. He may even be found fighting against God. You know, when you go against God's word, you're actually fighting against God. When you adopt worldly ideologies, you're actually going against God. They were persuaded by him. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, these, our brothers and sisters in Christ were beaten because of this. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. And they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name 
And that N is capitalized because it's referring to a person, that being Jesus. Here I am, I don't even want to be, you know, in an awkward moment. And here are these believers before me not wanting to be treated or, or feeling worthy, honored, and grateful to be counted worthy of suffering for Christ. So what do they do? They keep their mouths shut and open every day. <laughs> in the temple and in various homes, they continue teaching and proclaiming, not condemnation, but good news. Good news that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that's been promised to them for generations. He has come. He died for God's people. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. One day he's going to come back again and make all things new. So trust in him, not the temporary things of this world. And it shouldn't have surprised them. They were prepared. Because here's what Jesus told them. And Luke, the same author of Acts, records this about Christ. His words. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. This is an opportunity. This will give you a chance to proclaim my name even more. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time. You're not, just try, you're not trying to get out of something. I'll give you such words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. And what will those words wind up being? That Jesus Christ is risen and he is Lord. As in, all of this is worth it. You'll even be betrayed by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Maybe some of you all have experienced that. They will kill some of you. I'm thankful we've not had to experience that, most of us, in our time here in this world. Now, I do believe there have been people throughout American history uh, who have been killed and martyred for standing up for their faith. I'm thankful we can freely gather here in Tallahassee and be able to worship together. I thank God for that. He says, you'll be hated by everyone because of my name. But not a hair on your head will be lost. He says, and I'm sovereign. I control this. I've got you. By your endurance, gain your lives. So the question is, as people who believe in Easter, who believe that Jesus actually rose from the grave, as people who were loved by God and Good Friday and Easter are the ultimate evidences of that, do we believe all of this is worth it? You might not get flogged next to the synagogue or thrown into an open jail, and praise God for that. We thank God for that. But will you just stand up for Christ? We just draw some lines and go, I'm not telling you you can't go there, but I'm not. Because here's what I believe. I don't think all faiths are relevant. If all faith, or all, that it's all relative, I mean. I don't think all roads lead to the same place. If that's true, then why did Jesus die? Why? Then why tell the good news? No, there's one way to heaven. His name is Christ. Are we, are we ashamed of that or do we believe that? He rose from the grave. That's why it's not my job to stand up here on Sunday and give you five tips for a better life. You can get that, let's do a podcast. Here we proclaim Jesus Christ crucified and risen and gather every Sunday together as people who are unashamed of his truth and are unashamed to go forward with the loving message of the good news of the gospel. Like, it is worth it. Like teenagers that are here, let me tell you, it's worth it. It's worth it. But Jesus is worthy of all of it. No one 20 years from now is gonna care whether or not you were cool in middle school. I was very cool in middle school for the record, but no one, no one's gonna care your Instagram story goes away in 24 hours anyways. No one's going to care. What's going to remain? Christ. God's church. 
Let's hitch our wagon onto that. Let's be unashamed and have courage. Let's love the one who first loved us and be confident in who he is and what he's done. It's not easy. It was never designed to be easy. The book of Acts, they're experiencing what Jesus was talking about. It might look different for us, but the world will always hate the message. We'll never love enough. We'll never be nice enough. Be nice in love anyways. And remember, the world hated him. Of course they're going to hate us. We're going to love instead and be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You with me? Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for good news of Christ, the Messiah. And I'm thankful that when these first believers were pinned against the wall, that was their hope, that was their proclamation, was Jesus, who he is and what he's done. So we are not here to win any kind of war. We're here to follow the lion of the tribe of Judah. We are here not fighting against flesh and blood. We know that other human beings are not our enemies. Lord, the devil is our enemy. So Lord, I ask that we will resist temptation, that we'll be alert, that we won't collapse under the pressures and the weights of this world, and that we will be people who are unashamed of the gospel, because we know that you're unashamed of us, because you call us your own. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're told that if you're for us, that no one can be against us, that nothing can separate us from your love. So Lord, let that be our confidence. We're thankful for the blood of Jesus. We're thankful for that great substitute who stepped in our place to die a death that we deserve to make us right with God. And we worship the risen Christ, the ascended Christ, the Christ who is coming again. And we are grateful for all this is true in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing some good news as the unashamed people of God.